today's scripture comes from Matthew 1, uh, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, uh, spoke, spoken by the prophet. We're in our third week of Advent here, Advent here, which is the next Sunday we will celebrate the last and final week of Advent, Christmas Sunday, uh, Christmas lunch. Uh, please feel free to bring your family members. Um, and uh, last Sunday, though, uh, we took a look at Mary and her encounter with the angel Gabriel. Uh, we took a look at how she responded to this uh, shocking news that she was going to become pregnant through the Holy Spirit, what that was going to mean to her. Uh, we saw how she processed this with Elizabeth. We saw how ultimately uh, it wasn't a change of circumstance, but it was really her sort of eventual deep conviction of God's grace and love to her, right, um, that gave her the courage to move on with faith. And uh, today what we're going to take a look at, and uh, we're going to do a little deeper dive into the incarnation of Christ, incarnation of Christ. So here are three points today. First, we're going to take a look at the challenge of the incarnation. The, the incarnation is a logical challenge to us. Um, so we're going to take a look at that. Then we're going to take a look at the courage of the incarnation. And then lastly, we will look at the gospel here in our passage. So first, the challenge of the incarnation. Uh, incarnation is a combination of, of two Latin words, right? In means into, carn means flesh. It's where we get the word carnal, or more importantly, carne asada, right? Um, don't, don't fact check me on that. I don't know if those are connected. But um, the incarnation means into flesh. God becoming skin and bone. God becoming human. And what every single one of the Gospels and really all of the Scriptures, and probably if you've grown up in a church, what you and I take for granted is that the Bible testifies to this event, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming a human being. This is an intellectual challenge. How does that happen? God became one of us in every faculty, in every facet of our body, of our mind, of our soul. It's been said that the supreme miracle of Christianity actually is not the resurrection, but this, this unbelievable, incomprehensible reality of the incarnation. What is, what is more hard to believe, resurrection, creation, or the incarnation? C.I. Packer makes an interesting point about this. Uh, he's a theologian. He said this. He said, many people struggle with believing in miracles. They can't believe that Jesus could walk on water or raise the dead. They may also find the atonement that one man's death could clear the sins of others impossible to them. But once the incarnation is grasped, others, uh, sorry, these other difficulties begin to make sense. 
So it's important to take a moment to talk about the incarnation. Why did God choose the incarnation to reveal himself to us? Why didn't he just reveal himself to us in visions and through angels and through supernatural miracles as he did in the Old Testament? Why in the New Testament did he change? Did he reveal himself in the fulfillment, the culmination of his son becoming a human being, taking on flesh? Now, the incarnation is an intellectual challenge, but actually, if you don't have the incarnation, what we're presented with is actually not just an intellectual challenge, but an existential crisis, right? What I'm saying is that the incarnation is an intellectual challenge, but without it, we're presented with a greater crisis. What do I mean by that? Well, um, Frederick Nietzsche um, some of you may have heard of him. He was a German philosopher influenced by the Enlightenment era, uh, which was a period of significant scientific advancements and spiritual questioning. And what he argued was that during his time, since there was so much advancement, um, that humanity had reached a pinnacle of science and reason so that the belief or existence of God could be dispelled. That's what he was saying. He said the only problem with this is that without a divine creator, without a divine authority, a divine uh, moral lawgiver, what you have now are individuals now becoming their own moral lawgivers. He says uh, the governance that would flow out of a uh, dispelling of God is that individuals would now grasp which would be called what he termed their will to power. Now, you may have heard of that phrase, will to power, and their will to establish control in the world. Right? Now, it's fascinating because Nietzsche is just echoing what was written thousands of years before him in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, in chapter 17, it says that without divine ac- accountability, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, on the cosmic scale, what this does, it it empowers things like corruption and enslavement and oppression, crimes against humanity. On a personal level, without a divine authority, without a divine standard, this creates relational conflict, spousal, uh, familial conflict, bitterness, hatred, and despair. And so without the God of the Bible, without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we're actually presented with a greater problem. And um, one of sort of the pastors I follow is a guy named Tim Keller. And what he says is like, I can't prove to you that Christianity is true. But we can all make arguments on which one is most right, which one makes the most sense of reality, right? So without the incarnation, we're presented with a cosmic and personal crisis. But maybe you're thinking, okay, Rich, I believe in God, but I don't believe in your God, right? What about agnosticism? And, and what this means is that there is someone powerful, someone supernatural who had to create the world. But what this also means is that this God doesn't really care about us personally, right? He's not a personal God. He created us. He sees our suffering, he sees our pain, he sees our brokenness, and he says, not my problem. Right? This God has the power to alter it, but he provides no remedies for it. He's created us, but he's not for us. He's not, as Emmanuel means, with us. And so, 
according to Christianity, though, what the Bible said is that is 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 that God is not dead, nor has God left us, right? The Bible says in verse 23 that Mary's child will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so the biblical God, if you follow through the scriptures, it says that God is powerful. He is supernatural. He has created the world. He is just. And as the divine creator of all things, what this means is that God can't turn a blind eye to sin, right? He has to confront it. This is good news and bad news. Good news when we think about, oh, God is going to confront the sin of my evil boss, right? God is going to confront the sin of, right, crimes against humanity around the world. That is good news, right? God is a just God. Every injustice in the world will be answered, either in this life or in the next. But at the same time, what this also means is that God confronts all sin, not just the sins of others, but he confronts our sin. My sin, your sin, right? God is objective in that sense. But the incarnation tells us that God is not just powerful and just, but it also means he is infinitely loving. You see? Because in his infinite love, he will sometimes get, I, 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 I feel an, a feeling of, sort of inspiration and hope, but then some cynicism, um, some guilt, because I'm not living the way that God has made me to live, to, to live for him, to love him, to love others. Right? The book of Romans says that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. I wonder what Paul's thinking of this. You know, he's like, we got it, Paul, none is righteous. Right? He's like, no, 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 not, not one. He's <laughs> like, no, we got it. No, no one understands. You don't understand, right? No one even seeks God, he says. These are piercing, humbling, truth-telling words. But despite those things, that's what the incarnation means. Right? But now, if you do a search of this in the Bible, but now, I remember my, my professor said these are the two most beautiful words in the Bible. But now, Ephesians says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Right? But now, because of the incarnation, there is forgiveness and grace for us. Because of the incarnation, there is life and love after death. Because of the incarnation, evil and suffering will one day end. The incarnate becoming flesh, God with us, is the antidote to the cosmic and personal crises of our lives. See, we need the incarnation. It's not just a holiday, seasonal, traditional thing that we do. No, the incarnation means that God cares about the sin and the messiness and the brokenness of this world, right? We don't, we, we think we care, but we don't care like God cares. Oh, he cares. I'm going to take a break there. We'll get back to it, but let's take a look at the second thing here in our text, the courage of the incarnation. Now, let's consider what the angel's message meant to Joseph and Mary, right? Mary is pregnant. Joseph knows she is not the father, right? I'm reminded of those Jerry Springer shows where you are not the father. Oh, right? Or maybe, you know, Joseph's like, what? Right? So he decides to break off the engagement. 
But then an angel shows up and tells him, Jacob, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She will soon name you the Holy Spirit. So Joseph has a decision to make. He can obey God here. He can say, okay, I believe it's the Holy Spirit. I will not be afraid. Or he could say, nah, I don't even care if this is from the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm out of here. This is not what I envision in my life. Why would that be tempting? Because if Joseph does marry Mary, then everybody will know that this child was not born nine or ten months after they got married, right? They will know that she was already pregnant. To others, this would mean that they were either intimate before marriage um, or she was unfaithful to him, and as a result, in that shame and honor society, they are going to be shamed. They are going to be socially excluded. They're going to be rejected. They are going to be second-class citizens there. So behind this uh, personal Mary uh, message to Joseph and Mary is, is this cosmic, cosmic message to all of us. There's sort of three messages, and I'm going to break them down, but the first message to us is this. If Jesus comes into your life, you're going to have to kiss the purple sink of you goodbye. Right? I think you and I, we're so consumed with what people think of us. You know, um, I mean, I have friends who say, hey, how's that before the Sunday? Some of you are like, yeah, you should have brought a haircut. Well, I didn't. Okay, I mean, <laughs> you know, why? I'm thinking about why I'm concerned about that. That's the thing that, you know, we, we care about what people think about us, how we look, what they think about what we say or, or, or our uh, marriage or family or what we do. But what we're learning here is that if you want to be in a relationship with Jesus, he's going to take a kiss. Because all of Joseph's friends are going to say, what are you doing, Joseph? Come on. And Joseph is going to say, no, no, I can explain. It's through the Holy Spirit. Like, come on. <laughs> like, why? And another one bites the dust. And in, in Matthew chapter 13, 55, when Joseph's son, Jesus, is preaching the gospel, the leaders of the synagogue, what do they say? They say, isn't this Joseph and Mary's that's not her parents. So if Mary and Joseph are going to obey what God is telling them through the angel, if they're going to trust in God's word and, and his plan for them, then they're going to have to let go of what people are going to say about them. You see? I know that, uh, some, I remember Sometimes in my previous church, we'd be, be deliberating, the pastors would be deliberating about what decision to make, and occasionally there would be, inevitable, there would be a, a thought that would say, well, what are people going to think? And it's so easy for that, that kind of impulse to start dictating how one should act, right? Sometimes it's so clear, and Jen will tell me straight up, you know, she'll be like, like you're beating around the bush what do you want to say and i said this is what i want to say she said why don't you say that i'm like well i'm worried that i might offend somebody and she's like why does that matter you know my wife is definitely more courageous than me on that joseph and mary are going to just have to let go of control and so they need courage to step out in faith follow god 
And in the same way, Christian friends like you and me, uh, we're going to experience the same thing in some of our relationships if we want to believe in and follow Jesus. Right? People are going to ask us, why do you hold that value? It's, it's so bigoted. It's so, you know, um, old-fashioned. Why do you want to help that person? You know, you're inconveniencing our little church here. You know? Why do you want to forgive that person? Why can't you just join me and, and why can't we just, you know, hate on them? Why can't you date that person? Why can't you skip a Sunday? You see, just with Joseph and Mary, there are going to be a lot of people who don't understand your biblical convictions. And if you're going to obey and follow Jesus, you're going to have to care more about what God thinks than what other people think. That's just the reality. You know, you just, you can't do it. You can't, you can't please others and please God. Never going to happen. I've tried. Learn from my mistakes. And to do that, you're going to need courage. So first, you're going to need courage to let go of what other people think. But secondly, you're going to need courage, as we see here in Joseph and Mary's life, to let go of your personal desires, your personal plans. Right? Joseph and Mary had dreams. They were just like us. They could have never imagined this. God draws up an audible for them. Joseph has a choice, but he adjusts to the plan. It's a beautiful thing. Some of us don't want to adjust. And it's, it is hard. I'll, I'll admit, you know, even as a pastor, it's hard, right? Like, where, where, where do you stay with your conviction and then where do you adjust? And it takes tremendous wisdom. It takes tremendous communion and fellowship, the Holy Spirit, to identify that. Um, but nevertheless... It happens in life, doesn't it? God draws up a different plan, and you either got to adjust or you just dig in your heels. Joseph could have said, I don't want to do this. This isn't what I signed up for. But he has courage, right? He has faith in God. You see, faith and courage go hand in hand. You can't have faith if you don't have courage. And that's why throughout the Bible, you see uh, God's people being always encouraged to being a just man and unwilling to put Mary to shame. You know, this is a, man, this is profound. Because Joseph sh shows here that he, this is before the angel tells him that it's the Holy Spirit. Um, he's pursuing justice here by pursuing divorce. Okay, you have a right to do that. But he's none willing to put her to shame. And so what this means here is that Pursuing justice means not pursuing shame. I think this is a wide word for us, especially today. Because I think so many times when you and I, we, we experience injustice, it's understandable to get angry. That's okay. But I think sometimes in that anger, uh, what comes out of that is not justice, but maybe vengeance. Um, it's an overkill, maybe disapproval and criticism and shaming. And so we have to be careful here as we see just Joseph being described as just and what that also means that when we pursue justice, we don't commit the injustice of shaming. Uh, this happens with me and Jen, right? When one of us is offended by the other, we experience an injustice. But how we communicate that, how we pursue that is important, isn't it? I think early on in our marriage, we were getting used to each other. And so there was a little bit of impulsivity. 
and we were a little harsh, a little condemning, a little, we would cross the line sometimes with shaming. But I think by God's grace, we've learned how to be just in pursuing justice, right? In, in, in the court of law, when you're pursuing justice and you do it in an incorrect way, that case is thrown out, isn't it? It's just as important how you pursue justice. And so I think that, you know, uh, by God's grace, Jenna, we, we've learned how to respect and appreciate each other and not just shame each other in that moment because it's so easy to get caught up. But even this requires courage. Okay? Why does this require courage? So we see the incarnation tells us that by the grace and love of God, God doesn't shame us in our messiness. No, God di dives right into the messiness. He becomes one of us, and he salvages us. It requires faith not to get angry and to shame because God has a mysterious way of bringing about redemption if we can believe in him. Right? When Jesus is dying on the cross, people are shaming him. There are few that still believe. What this means is that we have to have the courage and faith to believe and trust that in the messiness of our lives uh, that God has this plan of redemption and he wants us to believe it. You know? Last Sunday uh, in Luke's account, the angel tells Mary that she's blessed and favored to partner with God in this plan of redemption despite the fact that her life has now become messy. Isn't that amazing? We gotta have faith, right? Uh, I understand, trust me, like, um, you know, we want to plan, you know, we want to hit these goals, um, but then, you know, life happens, and we get frustrated, we get discouraged, and our faith is like, God, why are you doing this in my life? And, but God is saying, you need faith, you need faith that I'm going to use this, that I'm going to bring about glory, right, in the midst of this, that I can bring about res resurrection out of death, um, reconciliation out of betrayal with the disciples, and so we get to see here that, that, that Mary and Joseph, they, they, they need tremendous courage here and tremendous faith to believe that in this crazy scenario that God is going to use it, right? Not just for God's glory, but for their joy too. And so friends, in the same way, you and I need to have faith and courage to really just take the hands off of our lives. Just gotta let it go. Surrender yourself to God. Lean into the situation. Just lean into it and, and trust God. It's not going to be the most comfortable thing. It's not going to be the easiest thing or the most secure thing, but faithfulness and love and trust and courage, these things is the will of God for us. And as we step out in faith and courage, you're going to see yourself grow stable. You're going to see yourself um, your faith grow. You're going to see your compassion grow. You're going to see your trust and courage grow, your selflessness grow. And you're going to see revival and transformation in your life. Which brings us to the last point, the gospel. Now, the angel tells Joseph, uh, Mary will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It's, it's, it's pretty cool, right? The angel's saying, hey, you're going to name him Jesus. You know, that's one of the funnest things, I think, of having a kid who gets to name their kid. They're like, nope, you don't get that, Jesus. <laughs> Joseph's like, come on, man. 
right? I was thinking, they, Jesus is a Greek form of the Jewish name Joshua. It means God saves. And this name was popular in the first century, given to Jewish children as a symbolic hope for the anticipated Savior. And the popular expectation of this salvation was deliverance from Roman oppression. But the angel here draws on a less popular but perhaps more important theme. He will save his people from their sins. So finally and most fundamentally, we can't follow Jesus unless we have the courage, lastly, to admit that we are sinners and we need forgiveness and grace. That's it. Maybe you're thinking, wait, Pastor Rich, I thought Jesus came to love me and accept me and empower me. Yes. But first, he came to forgive you and rescue you from your sin. Everything else flows out of that. You can't have the other things from God if you don't have the courage to admit them. Cornelius Plantiga teaches philosophy at Notre Dame, and he gives what I think is a good working definition of sin. He says, sin is the corruption of the good. And what that means is sin is the inability to love each other as we ought to. It's the inability, inability to do what's right. I mean, even in the Bible, it says sin is the inability to, to protect the weak and stand up for the oppressed. That's sin. Sin is the inability to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our body with which God has created us. And I struggle with this all the time. I, tr- I pursue interest <laughs> over God, right? I can, I can choose selfishness over God. And so we have to admit, we have to be willing to say at the end of the day that that we are all broken, we are all guilty, and we need forgiveness and grace before anything else. And it takes enormous courage and faith to admit these things, does it? You know? Because I think we live in a world um, where if you admit that you're wrong, you will get canceled. And so we're constantly trying to prove ourselves. And we have this trauma and baggage. And so when we come to God or when we come to church, we still haven't developed these muscles of vulnerable confession and forgiveness. So how do we summon the faith to be courageous like this? Right? To draw ourselves onto Jesus for his grace and forgiveness where his Holy Spirit will then enter into our hearts and will flow out like the Gospel of John says, like living water. There's only one way. It's only by looking at Jesus himself. Because if, if we think that, and it's true, Joseph and Mary, they experienced a very, very unique scenario, obviously, and they needed tremendous more courage and faith than probably you and I will ever need. But when we think about ourselves, and think about our courage, we have to think about the kind of courage Jesus had, you know? If you think about love, any kind of reciprocal love, 
Um, and you think about the closest and best friends around you, and you think about Wattwell, and he constantly put himself out there to be rejected. He kept encouraging, he kept praying, he kept loving, he didn't give up. Even as he was facing an agonizing death that had him wrestling with anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was abandoned by his disciples, those that he had poured his entire life into. He had spent time with them, and he, and he was abandoned by those disciples, falsely arrested. He's in that courtroom, he's falsely accused, he's unrightfully beaten, he's spit upon, he's cursed, he's slandered. He had all the right in that moment to bring down holy justice, but not once did he retaliate. And on the cross, in his most painful and shameful moment, he says this, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. There were times he wanted to, but Jesus was faithful to the end. Why did he do that? For what purpose did Jesus endure the cross? For what purpose, for what reward did Jesus endure the cross? Well, friends, Jesus suffered, he was betrayed, he was deserted, and he, he was killed in order that you and I, in order that you and I would experience the love like no other. Isn't that what you're looking for? An unconditional kind of love love that will see you through and accept you. He courageously endured all of this so that the power of sin would not only, well, so that sin would not only be forgiven, but the power of sin would be broken in our hearts. And that every time we are in fellowship with him, we would experience this supernatural grace. control to follow Jesus to let go of control and not care what people think to admit that you're a sinner before God before others because in that in forgiveness and, and confession there is grace and there is love there is love that kindles you gotta look at Jesus you gotta look at him if you wanna keep going to keep loving, to keep forgiving. You gotta look at the deep courage that Jesus had for you and me. And when you see this, so every time you look at his courage, it's hard though, right? Because sometimes you look at the world. Sometimes you look at, I don't know, what you're going through. Sometimes, you know, like David mentioned, Christmas is not the best season. Sometimes it's a season where maybe you have lost a loved one. it's easy to get discouraged and so we do all need courage and it's only when we look at Jesus and we put him into the center of our lives that we will have the courage to live out of this the courage that he gives to us the courage that 
that unites us with true courage. True courage. And friends, God is speaking to us just as he spoke to Joseph 2,000 years ago. His weathered staff still swaying too tall. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. No one is immune to fear. But God says, do not be afraid, for Jesus has freed you from your slavery. And he is Emmanuel, God with you. And if you have that, what more do you need? He gives her courage. Where are we going to get that courage from? Well, we know where. We know from him. From the Lion of Judah. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And uh, it's easy to get caught up in the season of Christmas. And it's a good distraction, it is. And for some of us, um, sometimes there is a crash after it. But for others of us, it's hard. Because we are experiencing in the midst of this season brokenness, some pain, some, some guilt, some shame. Um, not everything is perfect or going the way we want it to go. And it's easy to get discouraged. But as we look at this Christmas passage, we see that your message and your story of Christmas is the one that rings true throughout all generations know that it's easy to get discouraged no matter what season we're in. And so you tell us today, do not be afraid. Fear not. For Jesus has come into the world, the Savior of sinners, and you are with us. You are with us unconditionally. Not when we're doing well, not when we feel it, not when we're even being courageous and living faithfully. No, you are with us because it's you. So thankful that you are with us always. And I just pray for every single person here that as we place our faith in you yet again today in this gospel message, the Christmas message that Jesus Christ has come into the world to deal with sin, personal sin, cosmic sin, the sin of death, that we would find ourselves encouraged, not necessarily because our circumstances will change, but because, no, no, we have been reminded the eyes of our heart and have been opened to see the true, courageous Son of Man our oldest brother, our king, did not give up for us. And he will not give up, even if everyone else gives up on us. <sighs> Pray that that would sink into our hearts and give us the courage and faith to follow you above all.